I am so excited and honored to welcome back one of the experts in our field. You know, you know her as her work from Confianza, Ms. Sarah Otto. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Tan. It's so good to see you, and I'm so excited to be here. It's an honor. So congratulations on your second book. Let's talk about your first one because it tied this one dovetails perfectly into the second one. So let's remind people about your first book. You got it. So I wrote The Language Lens for Content Classrooms in 2019. Well, technically it was published in 2019. And that was really in response to the work that I do every day, um, training and coaching teachers. And the whole point of that book was to really demystify language learning in the classroom. And the main audience was twofold. Number one, general education teachers who think, I don't know what to do with students who are learning English. And number two, ML language EL specialists as talking points to help those teachers or refresh their own practice. So as teachers have read your first book, tell me a story where a teacher is like, oh my goodness, I read your book and this is what happened in my class. Oh, well, that's really exciting when I hear the impact because that's what professional learning is all about, yeah. right? It's not what happens when you're reading or when you're in the workshop is what happens after. Yes. <laughs> so one of the things that comes to mind is a teacher who was able to say, I always felt like I didn't understand language acquisition and I felt like the students in my, in this case, high school algebra classroom couldn't really uh, learn the grade level content of say algebra standards. Right. And now they're seeing, okay, wait a minute. They actually can learning a language, uh, learning an additional language. In this case, the target language is English. Right. You're not just learning algebra, the content, but you're learning the language of algebra. Right. And so if I provide what I like to say, amplified instruction, comprehensible instruction, scaffolded instruction, it really helps put students in the center so they can really learn at high levels. Right. And the teacher kind of saying, Ooh, I didn't know I could do it. And I feel more confident. And that's right. what I really like to see is the confidence because right. yes. I believe everyone can do that. Yes. It's our, as English language specialists, we are providing teachers. We're lending them our confidence in students. So then, then they're like, yes, I see what you're saying. I could do this. And then when they can do it, we no longer need to support them because they have those skills where they can feel like, yes, I know how to scaffold. I know what comprehensible input is. I know what comprehensible output is. I'm ready to work with kids. And my mindset around them has not changed. I used to think that they can't, but now I realize that they can when I provide support. Yes. So that is your book. 100%. It's really exciting when a school will work with the first edition too, or still have quite a few schools that we work with at Confianza that the principal is saying, we're going to use this as a text and we're going to use it at the classroom level for general educators. We're going to have the English learners have that bridge, like you're saying, as a set of talking points. But then we're also going to have um, coaches and people supporting teachers or facilitating those planning sessions to say, okay, how are we including the multilingual learners in all lessons? And more importantly, how do we know that they learned? So having that plan teach assess cycle to say, oh, this isn't something separate. That's my big thing. The language lens, my approach is not an add-on. Yes. It's literally just a lens. It's a way to focus your aperture right. to say, oh, wait, I'm already doing some of these things. I'm maybe just not doing it as intentionally. And how can I just polish it up a little bit to bring all students along? Yes. 
I love that. It's like, I'm already doing these things. How do I make it intentional? I love how Dr. Carol Salva said, uh, language focus is, uh, language development is not an extra thing. It is the thing for all of us. It totally is. I could not agree more. I think one of the things that I said in my new book is language and culture is not a sidebar. It should really be central to everything. Right. So right. it's nice to see the fields really shift more and more to inclusion. Well, you just mentioned your second book, your second edition. Let's talk about at a 30,000 foot um, mm -hmm. perspective, how is it different than the first one or how does it connect to this uh, first one? You got it. So because the first one was so popular in many spaces, teacher training programs and general educators, uh, one-off teachers reading it on their own and including the ML book club chat and other spaces, I figured, you know, a lot of it is nuts and bolts, kind of evergreen content, like you had said before, around comprehensible input, comprehensible output, the effective filter, sort of the things that we should all know about language learners. So I didn't want that to go away. I just wanted to make sure that was still available uh, in a lot of it, some of that, most of it, I would say, in its original form. However, there's 30% more content. So the first book was about 100 pages as a primer, as a foundational text. And then this one goes well almost to 200 pages. It's a smaller format, but it is 30% more text. Wow. What were the things, um, just can you outline them? What were the different things that, that made up the 30% new content? Sure. So in the information for teachers, which of course is central, I've really made the point that this is information for all educators. Mm -hmm. So this is not just, as I mentioned before, for your general educators and your language specialists, but this is really information for everyone in the school. In the past several years, since working with Confianza Professional Learning full-time, we're working um, heavily with specialists who may not be involved in your traditional professional learning. So for example, art teachers, music teachers, tech ed. We work with tech ed schools. We're working with all different kinds of educators, um, including support staff, um, psychologists, social workers, right? People who are like, oh, how do I reach and teach and nurture these students and their families? Right. And so we wanted to really open it up to that, um, as well as really say, you know what, if you're going to be evaluating, coaching, or supporting any of these teachers, you also need to know this information. So I wanted to widen the aperture and say, let's make sure all this information, those nuts and bolts, as I was saying, to use an idiom, are available um, and really promote that message for all for all educators. At the same time, there's a lot of extra content around what we've learned during COVID, um, some new information, right, around how do we bring in self-examination of bias and equity-based practices. I really believe in going beyond asset-based to equity-based. Tell me about that difference. Whole thread there, yes. So I believe when we say ELL, we need to think about equity, language, and literacy, yes. first and foremost. So equity means what do we need to do? It's not always on the students. It's usually what are we trying to do as, as a system right. or as an individual educator, whether you be a leader or a teacher, to say it's maybe historically hasn't been working. The students have been on the margins. They're sort of otherized. They're a subgroup. Well, what if we flip that and say, what if we design every classroom with their needs in the center? Mm, yeah. And as we were saying before, not have them be a sidebar. 
And so how does that look? It can go anything from, you know, asset-based is great and it's a wonderful place to be. However, it was sort of going deeper. And there's an example that I talk about in the book and several other examples where we could go from deficit-based to asset-based around talking about a student and saying something like, well, this student doesn't know English. Well, how do we flip that, right? We all know we could say this student doesn't know English yet, or this student knows multiple languages and is right. developing their translanguaging skills. Right. Well, we can go further into equity-based to say, ha, huh, this student is developing their language skills. They have multiple languages they're working with in their linguistic repertoire. What do I need to do to learn more about that, to include them more in my classroom? And better yet, how can other students who are monolingual benefit from that student's specialized knowledge? So you're saying the equity part is saying, thinking about instruction in a different way, creating the conditions for students to be successful with their assets. That's right. And at the end of the day, I think a, a more simple way to put it is how do we get students to be agents of their own learning? Yes. Let's go through the chapters of your book. You have two lenses of your unquote book. It, your, the lenses, one is for uh, teachers, all teachers, educators, and then one is for instructional leaders. So we'll go through as many chapters as we can in the next 40 minutes. So let's start with talking about equity-based mindsets and high expectations. The first question you have for educator side is that how do we start developing a language lens? Yeah, so that really goes back to what we were talking about, about looking inward and saying, what is it about me and my experiences? So for example, um, over 70% of US-based, well, this book is for international, I do a lot of US data to kind of ground the work. Over 70% of our teaching force in the United States are like me, white, well-intentioned uh, women <laughs> who may not have this have had the same experiences racially, linguistically, economically, um, ability-wise, and other assets of our identity. So as a diversity and inclusion specialist, I kind of bring that lens in and say, how do we how do we really put ourselves kind of in that mindset of we have to maybe rethink and again redesign the way we do school? I bring in some of the newer pieces that are happening in the U.S. that I think in some way are kind of catching up to some of the international schools oh. where I taught and worked. So, for example, the, the U.S. Secretary of Education, Miguel Cardona, is really promoting dual language instruction. Wow. And if schools can't, for whatever reason, provide a dual language program, he's really touting what we all know to be true but now we're hearing it from the very top that being bilingual is the superpower. Yes, it is. Right. So that's flipping the script and that's helping teachers, educators, support staff, all people who may have never really thought like, Oh, this is something that is an asset. And more importantly, maybe there's something that our whole classroom or our whole school can benefit from. Right. I love it when I see, um, and in this chapter and others, I talk about it too. I love it when I see classrooms, you know, not just posting other languages, but having students learn, say, root words and etymology in other languages, right? So it kind of helps students see, you know, we live in an English speaking world, but we're one of the only countries that have over 70% of us are only speaking English. So what am I trying to say? Let's be more multilingual. Let's yes. celebrate it. Yes. And again, let's, you know, really think in terms of we can do this. We can reach all students. Right. 
let's talk about the instructional leader side. How can we ensure high expectations that positively impact a professional learning culture? Yeah, so as I mentioned, you know, the first edition of the book was really written for uh, the teachers that I work with. Well, this is the response for the leadership level. And one of the places that I start, especially with principals, is how are you framing inclusive, equitable instruction across your whole school? So opposed to just saying, oh, in an MLL class or an ELD class, we want to see this. No, let's just talk about any classroom you go in at any given time. What do you want to see? What do you want to hear? And what do you want to feel? And really helping leaders develop an inclusive model of instructionable, of equitable instruction, excuse me. And that could be very simple. Like I want to hear all students expressing themselves. Equity of voice. I don't want to just see the same students ping-ponging and answering the teacher or sitting there passively all day. Like what do we really want for all students and really developing that? You're basically saying we're going to, with this concept, um, no more teacher lottery. Meaning like, oh, I got Mr. Smith or I got Miss um, Otto this year. And so I'm lucky and everyone else didn't. Mm-hmm. And so they're not as lucky because we know there are exceptional teachers out there and everybody wants to be part of that class. But what if we say, oh, we have a culture where everyone is exceptional, where all teachers are exceptional. So there's not a teacher lottery. Yeah, that's a really great way to put it. Um, thanks for sharing that. You know, I did a deep dive into the newest book from John Hattie and the meta research done, which I love to use to drive my work and validate my own action research, because I do action research every day in my work. And that's the biggest piece that really is that call to action for leaders. As Hattie talks about, all the research shows that sense of belonging is a precursor to learning. And what do we call that in ML education? We call that effective filter. But let's demystify that and maybe make that a little more approachable. (laughs) (laughs) for all learners to say, okay, everyone needs to belong. Okay. Now break that down. What does that really look like in your school and own that and then evaluate around it and coach around it. Right. right? So that all students are at that, that center of their life. Right. So you're, I see the evolution of the second book right now, as we're already talking about the first chapter, it's really saying, yes, these are great things for MMLs, but really what about these things for everybody so that everybody has access so that it's not just the MLs? What about the kid who is fluent in English, but yet is not writing at the academic level? They need the support in math. So we have to take this, these strategies, these approaches for MLs, and they're great for everyone else as well. So in the book and throughout the book, I point teachers and leaders and any reader looking at the book towards a new resource hub at languagelens.com. And we'll be developing and pushing out content from our work and from my work in schools. Um, and, and one of the pieces is going in deeper into that. How do you define equity, right? And giving examples from the field. So that again, as you mentioned before, we're all language learners. And whether you're learning English as an additional language or you're learning the quote standard language of school <laughs> or quote academic language, what does that really mean anyways? So we got to be careful that we're not excluding people because language can include, it can also exclude. Yeah. Uh, and one of the newer pieces of content that's a thread throughout the book is making sure that we're validating all languages. Mm-hmm. And so not just other languages, like for example, students who are speaking 
a language other than English at home, but also uh, African-American English. There is a new AAE dictionary uh, being developed by Harvard at this moment that really is finally sort of legitimizing, oh. legitimate, but right. publicly legitimizing this lexicon, which is a huge part of our culture wow. and our language. Also really validating and understanding generational slang and things that come out of moments in time. Like for example, doom scrolling came out of the COVID years, right? <laughs> <laughs> or maybe before that, I'm not sure. Distancing, <laughs> <laughs> right? Was one of the biggest words of 2020. And really thinking again um, at all levels about how we're all learning language and language is fluid and it's really fun to bring in and analyze in any academic setting. Let's move to chapter two, which is a very connected to that, culturally and sustaining and identity investment. How can we center those students in our classrooms who have been in the margins? Yeah, I think, you know, it goes back to our equity conversation um, going a little bit deeper about you know, language is power. And when students aren't using language, they're not using, they're not learning it, but they're also not having that power. So again, what are our look for is how do we make sure that every teacher is equipped to provide equity um, through the student's voice? So not just hearing students, but hearing them use the target language, hearing them express their opinions, hearing them build on, hearing them elaborate, hearing them agree, disagree, really being able to engage in discourse. Because to me, it's not just about the college and career readiness, it's about life readiness. So how do we make sure that um, those people at the top, including principals, assistant principals, evaluators, instructional coaches, department heads, but most importantly, the teachers all have that shared view that we're actually um, agents of socialization. So my background is in social justice education, if it's not clear. And it's like we can <laughs> perpetuate the status quo by how our classroom and our school is. Yeah, yeah. Or we can interrupt it and we can create something new. Right. So one of the things that I recommend in chapter two is doing a deep dive on a student. And we do this in our coaching. We do this in my professional development where we choose a student that keeps us up at night, someone who we carry around with us in our heart, maybe a student who we can't reach, a student who's maybe representative of a new group in our community, and we do a deep dive on that student. And we look at not just the quantitative measures that we're so good at in education, right. but the qualitative measures. Right. Right. And it's kind of like student shadowing where we where we really kind of understand what that student's story is, what's their language history, and then... Um, you know, really most centrally, what does that mean for us? How can we look inward to maybe rethink assumptions that we might've had and what systems and strategies can we put in place to help students succeed? Let's look at how can leaders, how can all leaders' identities be affirmed as part of the, of an equity learning culture? Yeah, I get really personal in this part of the book, and I talk about my own story. Nice. I talk a lot about stories, students and families and teachers, uh, even in the first edition. But in this part of the book, I get pretty personal and talk about my own experiences as an at-risk student myself, who went from gifted and talented to in danger of failing high school, which a lot of people don't know about. And so I was inspired uh, by my friend and colleague, Emily Francis, um, in her work to really go a little bit deeper into my own story. Tell us about it. Well, and why do I do that? Because that's the piece I think that's missing sometimes. Yeah. I mean, that's 
what I've always believed about education, that confianza, that mutual respect. We're not just teaching students as sort of receptacles of knowledge. We're actually always learning from them too and their families. So in order to really be authentic and human, I, I thought, you know, I really need to strip back even a little bit more mm-hmm. and show people my thought process and my emotional process too of being vulnerable as an instructional leader and as a teacher and showing how different experiences in my life have really shaped who I am and how I have to continue to look inward right. to be even more critical. And why do you recommend that for teachers to look at the identities connected to their work? So, so much of our experiences, as as we've talked about already today, Tan, you know, really impacts maybe implicitly, explicitly, consciously, unconsciously, how we help or hinder students. I mean, I see it every day. Like I'm in classrooms, I'm tracking data, using our coaching tools. I will point out to a teacher and say, I don't know if if it was your intention, but you only call on boys <laughs> and you only call on these five boys for 45 minutes. Like, oh, really? I didn't know that. Thanks right. for sharing that data. Okay, let's go deeper. What does that mean? Yes. Maybe. What do you think is happening there? What, you know, is there something below the surface for you right. um, or something that we can help you be more aware of to make sure that all students are part of the learning conversation? Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. It's uh... <laughs> It, we can't like just like kids can't separate their identities from school mm-hmm. teachers can't separate their identities from the way they teach as well so it's very connected it's very connected yeah and you know it can again help or hinder our experiences in the classroom I also think it's really important for students to see us as humans yeah. I, I always was and I give more more and more stories in the second edition about okay last uh part of every Friday afternoon if you all finish your work and, you know, do all the things you're supposed to do is going to be, let's teach Ms. Auto Spanish. And this is before I taught in Latin America, before I became more proficient in Spanish myself, uh, working in a bilingual school in a monolingual classroom. Um, I share those experiences in the book and how hilarious it is when students can see us as learners ourselves, right? So just kind of going back to that identity piece over and over again in really meaningful ways. I think it's just, it's time. We've got to really become just even more human-centered. Because teaching is a relationship-based profession. It's relational. It is. And as I said before, we're agents of socialization. We don't even realize it sometimes. But we act, what we say, who we look at, who we call on, who we group together, who we don't call on, really says a lot. And again... It goes back to leadership too. It's leaders have a responsibility to shape that narrative right. and that culture of their school. Right. Because who's excluded and who's excluded. Students look at us to see what's valid and what's invalid. Let's look at chapter three, language goals to support content learning. How do teachers infuse language within our content objectives and goals? Yeah, well, you know, I think this post, if I can call it post, can I call it post-COVID? I don't of know. Was I post-COVID? I'm not sure. <laughs> yes, but I think we're ready to move on. <laughs> <laughs> Please. But I think, I think it provided a couple silver linings. One being, how do we teach? How do we plan? How do we assess? Right. We had to kind of reset with everything shutting down, right. the learning online, coming back in gradually, 
And that's a big theme that I see across schools that I support is we're really going back to basics. So by going into and looking at how do we plan with standards in mind is something that I think is evergreen, but it's also really important right now, at least in the work that I, that I'm doing. So with uh, the lens of leadership and also the lens of teachers being able to say, what is the standard? Do I know what it means? Am I putting it in student-friendly ways? And how do I know that my students learned it? I mean, it's central. It's basic stuff, right? But it's really important to do that. And if you bring the language lens around it, you're bringing in that cultural and linguistic piece to make sure that students are equipped with the language to both learn it and then show that they know it. For principals or leaders, it's the question is, how can clear goals drive change at a school level and at a classroom level. Yeah, I think that's one of the big challenges of leadership um, is really connecting all the goals that the educators are working on to the school improvement goals. And then if they're in districts, connecting district improvement goals, as opposed to what can often happen, which is like a hodgepodge of, okay, Dan's over here working on that. And Sarah's his co-teacher, but she's working on this. Well, what if we were co-teaching and we were working on the same student goals and the same professional practice goals. And better yet, what if we realized as a school, we all need to work on say, writing instruction to expand sentences, you know, and and whatever the need is there. And then, you know, getting all aligned. The biggest impact that I see in the work that I do with schools is when the principal leads the parade and says, here's what the data is telling us. We're all coming to that shared understanding of what the data is showing, both for language and content. And now let's create a plan so that we're all aligned with those with that school goal. And then if possible, try to connect that classroom level, teacher level goal to it. It's alignment and focus really. Yeah, right. I was going to say that alignment and alignment helps us before we get to alignment, it's about priorities. What's our priority? And then we align everything to that priority. So that the principle helps set that or the the whoever is the leader at the leadership level helps mm-hmm. set that priority and alignment. Absolutely. And what I don't want to see is, okay, now we're bringing in this vendor and this book and this professional development workshop and this, and it's not connected to that. I mean, we'll right. actually say, my team will say, we're not a good fit for you <laughs> because that's not your focus. We're not interested in doing professional development for the sake of professional development if it's not connected. Right to the to the goals of the school right. in some way shape or form so maybe there's a focus on belonging for example great well here's how we need to frame our work right. to fit into that right. versus let's just throw everything at everyone and we're over resourced and that is i think what can happen a lot right. is right. there's it's a good thing to be resourced but then we're over resourced and we have initiative overload and we're not really sure where we're going right. so for principals and and other folks at that leadership level i do suggest, you know, and lessons I've learned and continue to learn every day is get really clear on goals and help people right. measure progress towards those goals together. Because right. right. we want to avoid that. If you want to avoid teacher burnout, it's uh, let's avoid the initiative of the month or the initiative of the year. Mm-hmm. That's right. And I will say there's some tips um, the beginning of the book and throughout at the end of every chapter for um, bringing teachers in to help drive the professional learning culture and the professional learning goals. Um, in my previous work before starting Confianza, I worked with the Gates Foundation in studying professional development, and I ran a couple of teacher leadership programs for ELL teachers. 
as well as an ESL master's program that was embedded in the district. And in all those experiences, I learned that we need to have teachers voice people closest to the students making decisions. Right. Okay. So while I talk about leadership, they're central, but, but the biggest tip is how do we bring in the teacher voice so that they're co-designing, co-developing that professional learning based on those goals. It's not something that's being done to them. Just like we don't want to have happen to students. Right. Oh, this student's having something done to them. No, no, no. We want students to have agency and we want teachers to have agency too. Uh, so they can be uh, not so they can be engaged in the process as well. Yeah. Let's look at uh, part four, language and literacy practices in all content areas. How do we ensure language rich learning spaces for all learners? That's a million dollar question. <laughs> I think you have the answer. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have the answer. I mean, that's my wish and my goal is how does every classroom foster engaging, meaningful learning? I mean, at the end of the day, I w- we want students to love learning. That's like my thesis right there. How do we get students to be agents of their own learning, to love learning, to see it as a lifelong process, to have choice and voice in their lives. And we do that through really engaging classrooms that are language and literacy rich. So in the book, I explored and present some real basic yet fundamental ways to have a balance of speaking, reading, writing, and listening, our four favorite domains, (laughs) (laughs) and really make sure that um, teachers are equipped to plan with that in mind, but also be responsive in the moment to make sure that you know, you're bringing students into the conversation, you're thinking about groups, how to create groups, how to have students assess their group work, um, all different, you know, in other words, we often call them sheltered instruction strategies, good old uh, ESL strategies, kind of bringing it to the mainstream and making sure that all teachers have access to these really great ways. I mean, one of my favorite things that I present and model in all professional learning is what I like to call chunk and chew. Mm. So making sure that you're not talking at people so long, but having them uh, not in an interview situation. Because I'm, inter- I'm being interviewed, so I'm talking at you a little bit. But in a learning situation, it would be the opposite, right? I wouldn't talk for more than five, seven minutes because that's right. all the brain can handle. Right. So that's the chunking. And then the chewing is having students, right. adult students or K-12 right. students, um, process and chew, right. right. By turning and talking purposefully, right. give some great examples for that. Um, and then, you know, also writing or any kind of way to like really process the information so that students are not passive. And and I think for the leaders level, especially coaches, not, not withstanding evaluators though, is one of the most popular parts of my first book. I still brought in for the second book, which is how do you measure that? Mm -hmm. I do encourage teachers to record themselves and and reflect on their own ratio of speaking to listening. Um, Are students speaking or are they listening? Let's just start there. But also evaluators, instructional coaches and the like can go in and do very simple tally marks. And I give different examples and more on the website of ways that I measure that every day. How do you measure engagement in a way that's meaningful for teachers to really reflect on and change their practice? What are some ways that um, you can measure that then? Sure. So one of the ways is really quantifying and qualifying, but first starting with quantifying teacher talk versus student talk. Mm-hmm. And I get, you know, even more specific, it's student to student talk. And it's not just students talking to each other, 
but it's very specific ways right. of having students, uh, again, be in structured groups, as I mentioned before, having purposeful models and exemplars, and even deeper is having it focused towards a language function, whether that be agree, disagree, justify, explain, what have you. And um, with that, you know, just quanti just quantifying it. How many times did the teacher talk how, or how many minutes? And then how many times or how many minutes are students talking to each other? And I don't know if you can see this graphic on page 122, but this is literally the reports that we provide for oh. school fuzzy, but you could see there's 50, 50% over here and then hundred percent on the other side. So at the beginning of the year, true story, a lot of times, especially in secondary schools, we do a baseline walkthrough and we see hundred percent of the time, the teacher's doing most of the talking. Oh, wow. Not all the talking. And we present that and we're like, you know, what do you think? And that's what coaching is, right? Is here's the data. It's not my interpretation of it. It's just literally the hard data. Right. And then, okay, now how is that going to drive our professional development? Right, right. And then that other piece that I showed you was 50-50. So we, this is pretty much the trend in our, in our research is we see from 20% to 0% of teacher talk to 50% of teacher talk. So 50% of the time we'll see teachers talking and 50% right. of the time in the lesson we'll see the students talking. Hey, that's a win. Teachers need to talk. They need to teach. <laughs> we need that direct instruction, as you said. Right. Right. We also need to have students driving their own learning. Right. So that's a win as far as we're concerned. Yeah, that's a huge win. And you gave teachers a really practical way of like, you don't need an administrator there to help you do this. Record yourself for like 10 minutes. And then in those 10 minutes, what do you notice? Is it you mostly talking or is, it, or is there, are you chunking the information? Are you having sit, stop and process? That's a wonderful way. That's what I think Dr. Hattie shared as well. Micro teaching. He's like, record yourself and then watch it and then reflect and then change your practice. It's like, it's getting feedback on how we, it's like self analysis of, and then that provides feedback on our instruction. Yes. And Jim Knight too, who we use a lot of his work to drive our coaching work. And it's, it's about taking control of your own practice. That's another piece I'll just mention for a moment is when you do listen to yourself, you're amazed at how many idioms you use or how yes. quick you're speaking, or there's a whole section in moving into chapter five about instructional language, right, right. The power of even 20, 25 years into my career, always taking time to reflect, right. to make sure we're not disenfranchising anybody just by the way we're giving directions because that can happen. <laughs> Let's end. We have 10 more minutes. A wonderful opportunity to talk about the last chapter, scaffolds for input and output. How will the essential question for teachers is how will you add uh, to your tool kit to box so that you can implement language routines and scaffolds? I mean, this really ties it all together in the first edition. That was one of the most popular parts for teachers is, okay, thank you. Now I have the list of strategies. Okay. I've been kind of picking up on them throughout. You know, there's a lot of foundational building and a lot of the rationalization and research as we've been discussing here, but chapter five really puts it all together and be like, don't forget, these okay. are the things that you can do, whether it's creating unit study guides, starting with the end in mind from the first chapter to think, okay, what are the standards? How do I know my students learn it? What are some ways to get students engaged in group work? What are the essential scaffolds we need to think of for students at the beginning levels of language acquisition versus intermediate advanced? And then of course, all of our students. Okay. Um, I do mention the new work 
that uh, you have published oh. um, central to that. So just reminders of when we're dealing with students who haven't made those gains yet, and we're referring to them as long-term language learners, right. rethink your language, right? That's a big message of my book is language is power. And that's a message of your work. Say, wait a minute, we're calling them long-term language learners. Maybe we're not really addressing the underlying ways right. of empowering the students more. Right. I'm not going to say it as well as you are, but that whole multilingual um, mindset yes. students as opposed to being terminally long-term. Yes. A little less right. equitable, doesn't it? Right, right. I think our work speaks the same because it's saying, not saying, the label says, there's something wrong with you. And so we're saying, what's up? Let's look at our instruction. What's about, what is it about our instruction that is maybe possibly causing that? And then the response would be, oh, it's the two lenses, input, output, like scaffolding input and output. That's what we have to start analyzing. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I do talk about that's new is um, some of the science of reading work that's happening across the land. And I am a reading specialist as well, uh, who's a bilingual reading teacher. So I don't have all the answers, but I do have some thoughts on that, particularly with the scaffolds for literacy, because I think there's a lot of exciting resources out there in the field. Yeah. But sometimes we're missing that high tech, high touch piece right. with basic reading instruction. Right. And I think our students who are multilingual that are in that, um, that can be fossilized, you know, at that stage that your work talks about may not have had authentic, deep teacher connected right. literacy instruction. Right. And I'm sure um, that's explored in your work because I will be reading that book next. Well, Sarah, I think that's your third book really is about bilingual literacy. Wow. Oh, you're like planning my <laughs> after work too. You know? <laughs> I think that's important. What you that that because that that's missing in the field. We keep hearing about science of reading, but then the but what about multilingual learners? What does that look like for them? Right. And so, yes, I mean, I did some research on that. There's not a lot of research out there. I did quote the only research I could find, which was validating of that there isn't a one size fits all. And I think right. that's, you know, what we're all saying is there's not a prescriptive model. There's right. things to keep in mind, but what does that student need? And some of the most recent research has um, been very controversial um, without getting into it too far, but, you know, I'm old enough to remember the first reading wars and having been a teacher then where it was phonics versus whole language. Yes. I see it as a very similar pendulum swing, if you will. Right. Right. It doesn't mean we're not learning about the brain and we are learning more about the brain and that's good. Mm -hmm. However, it isn't just that prescriptive go through this exact sequence mm -hmm. and you will become proficient as an English reader. The multilingual brain is very different and the research is showing that many schools are not going to that level of depth, right. that they're supplanting a monolingual space right. on multilingual multilingual brains. So I am concerned about that. So we'll see. Maybe I'll do some more writing and research on that. We're ready for that book, Sarah Metalia. And if you write it, we'll read it. <laughs> well, it's very kind. I am really excited about your work and uh, yours and Beth's as that missing piece in the field. And I think, again, it's part of this sea change that we're seeing. Right. And I think, you know, it's exciting to be part of that shared mission that we have for really redefining the narrative and making sure that students who have historically been at the margins are in fact centered in all classrooms. Which actually is connected to the last question about leaders. Like how can we sustain and scale systematic 
practices to maximize impact across the school then? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I talk about and I share several things, but really comes out of my work, my actual research with leaders is systematizing. That's a word that I like to use. How can you take what's working and share it with the whole school? So here's an example, and this is on page 176. What you'll see is a chart where students can self-assess not only their glows and grows and create a goal, but are they speaking and or writing in words, sentences, or discourse? And what does that do? That again, puts students in the driver's seat. Right. And we don't let language acquisition be this mysterious force of what is a two and what is a three and what is ELPA or what is WIDA? Like we equip the students who are engaging with those assessments with the knowledge to become better. Not so that they can quantify themselves, but they can look at the quality of academic language. And that has hands down been one of the biggest levers of improvement in the school's where I've worked is when students are able to demystify what language is, how do I get better at it? Whether they're, as they talk about, you know, MLLs or ALLs as academic language learners, and everyone can really uh, be united and and improve. So for those who are, who are on on the podcast, the the image that Sarah Sarah showed was an image of like word level. It's a little pot with a little bit of plant growing out. Yes. And in the sentence level, there's like the plants getting bigger. And then the at the discourse level, it's like even more plants. And so it's like growing fully. And so students get to say, okay, well, this is my goal today. And did I reach it or not? And what's my goal next? And so I guess what Sarah is saying is like, when we give this tool to them, they get to be um, reflective of what they did. And that's connected to the equity part where they say, oh, I can own my learning. And I can be successful. Here is how. And so it's not just what teachers are doing to me. It's what I can do for myself. Well, Sarah, let's end the podcast with this. After uh, 25 years of advocacy and work, what do you know to be true? (laughs) Well, I know that I have to keep learning. Very humble. We all do. Yeah. Number one. I mean, every time I go to schools and I observe and coach, I always talk to students. That's my number one thing is students tell us what they need. If you create those relationships and you make them feel safe, we'll tell you. I have students say, miss, I love the school because of this. Or miss, I'm having a hard time. I, I'm working all night unloading boxes at Best Buy and I'm here with no sleep. And this class is boring. You know, that's really important information. We have to learn from students. That's my final word on that. Well, uh, we love being your student, Sarah Otto. And thank you for... Um, sharing with us on the podcast and congratulations on your second edition. Thank you very much.